Previously on Storyological. <laughs> Shit, how did I think I was going to say that? Kids don't even know how creepy they are. I think this is one of our major problems in society. Hey, come on out. The best place to bury the clue that gives it away, the best place to bury the murderer is in the first or second paragraph. Like You've done quite a lot of that psychological work to make a piece inside yourself. And so what you're really looking for is others to be doing that work as well so that you can kind of sail off with them and feel that that kinship this is storyological a podcast about amazing stories that we kind of like i'm chris camarude and i'm eg kosh my pick for this week is hey come on out by uh, shinichi hoshi it was discovered by me in the best japanese science fiction a 1989 book edited by John Apostolou and Martin Greenberg, and specifically recommended after I had the book on my desk by one of our friends, Rob, who said, oh, I think I know that book. It's got kind of this oh, nice. red or purple cover. I it was that kind of moment of synchronicity. Uh, yeah. Um, and it actually, it was published in FNSF, I think back in the 70s. And the author is a very giant Japanese SF author. Uh, but you know, there you go. There's life. I found this story in a 1989 <laughs> anthology. And so far as I know, it's completely out of print, but it also is on the internet with a disclaimer under it saying, hey, it's out of print. I don't know if this is legal. If anybody has a problem, let me know. Yeah. And clearly no one has taken it down. So yeah, hedge of money. Um, this story comes in a long line of stories with a hole. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's Pandora's box. Or there's like... Doctor Who's Cracking the Wall. Yeah, Doctor Who's Cracking the Wall, Bag of Holding. That's not a story, but that's a thing where there's an infinite capacity in a small (laughs) space. Um, There's an episode of Angel called Hole in the World where, you know, you just get to have a character say out loud, wow, you would have thought if there was this big of a hole in the world, we would have noticed before. (laughs) Oh, my word. But, you know, in that that jossy way, it it was sweet and something feels right that underneath your feet, this is this gaping blackness. Um, In this story, a typhoon has passed and a village shrine has been swept away and there's a hole in the ground introduced in the story by a character saying, hey, what in the world is this hole? What in the world? (laughs) Which I love right away how in that introduction to this infinite hole that cuts through the earth, you get a a nonchalant kind of tone Mm. that reminded me of Kids Johnson and Murakami and Judy Butnitz and a little bit of Kelly Link, though Kelly Link is a bit less nonchalant often, but something that was... very studied nonchalance in in Kelly Link. It is. Um, But something that was similar is that the story progresses along fairly logical lines after establishing the absurdness of the fact that there's this hole and it seems to be bottomless. Mm-hmm. There's little to no dialogue attribution that the, the voices just come in and out of the story that are just villagers and people. It's like right. the people are interchangeable. And there are this a similar kind of declarative sentences that we talked about and Kelly Link that, that help. I feel like the, the nonchalantness of the tone, the declarative sentences, the fact that the people are interchangeable, there's a sense of distance that roots the absurdity in a way to where after this enterprising concessionaire tells them, hey, if you just give me the hole, I'll fill it up. I'll get it out of here and I'll also build you a new shrine. When he starts taking nuclear waste, okay. I mean, 
That's interesting. When the nearby city attaches a pipeline so they can get rid of their trash, okay, that, that's still pretty good.、Uh, and then when random vagrants and unnecessary classified information start getting thrown down the hole, and then Diaries of people who are engaged, the diaries of where they talked about their ex lovers. Yeah, yeah, are, are thrown in the hole. It's just these beautiful, very simple ticks of, of escalation and absurdity that,、mm. that swing both towards societal condemning humans or, or dumb people and a, a little bit more of that sense of, of a story with a hole where it's something inside of you that you have to hide, you know, the, the love phone、yeah, letters and which, things. Which is exactly what made me think of the kind of The damage we do to children as they grow up, the kind of the way we toss our own emotional baggage into the, the hole that is a child and we fill them up with this. As Grayson Perry put it, I've just started reading his book, The Descent of Man. He's got a lovely opening chapter where he talks about. The, the pain and rage that some men hand down through the generations to their children. And he, he gives this、uh, anecdote about he's out on his mountain bike one day and he passes a young boy who is really struggling. But not only is he struggling, he's clearly filled with this anger and rage and shame that he cannot reach the top of the hill where his dad is. And then when Grayson gets to the top of the hill, the dad is. Also boiling over with fury, right? Because his son is failing to live up to these expectations of masculinity that he has set for himself, set for his son, and probably inherited from his father. And, and that kind of thoughtless handing down of pain through the generations, I thought of like this tunnel, this hole that just slides like an open gullet、yeah. that accepts those and, and those emotions and the psychological trauma slides between the generations. Yeah, that's beautiful. One of the reasons it reminded me of Kids Johnson is because of, it, it reads like a particularly caustic kind of pop song. I mean, in the, in the way that the great pop songs ultimately seem to, to find their way around any kind of, of love story. And then it feels like this story finds its way around so much of, of humanity's failings. And it's very short. Oh, yeah. What is it? Like a thousand words?、Uh, yeah, maybe. It, and, and one of the stories, well, there are two stories it reminded me of. I'll start with one. It reminded me of. Pockets by Amal El Matar, and the way that in this story, much like in Pockets, when you discover this strange passageway,、mm. you attempt to scientifically understand it. In that story,、yeah. you know, she finds a pocket in her coat that seems to disappear things. And they, they try to figure out how this channel is working. And in this story, it's the same thing that it begins with that boy saying, Hey, come on out. And then the next, the next boy throwing a pebble down it. And then there's a scientist that brings a bullhorn trying to create such a loud enough sound they can hear an echo.、Mm. Somebody else drops a rope down it with a weight trying to measure it. But ultimately, when they try to pull it back, it just gets cut off. There's, there's a wonderful logic, a wonderful framework of the, of the way humans, much like in what I feel like I'm always doing in pockets, exploring the way that we will apply our scientific, rational minds and rigor.、Yeah. To、yeah. crazy things. And, and also, it speaks to that fear that I think is reflected in some parts of our societies that, that are af- afraid of science and technological development and have this kind of superstition that, that what technology does is create a monster. 
And that's what we get at the end of this story, right? We get we get the voice that seems to come from nowhere. That's like, okay, what have we been growing? Let's go to that voice from nowhere, and then I'll maybe come back to uh, to how you read it as a technological thing. The other story this reminded me of, and that I told Rob as soon as I finished it, I was like, you know what this story reminded me of? Ted Chang's Tower of Babylon. Haven't read it. And Rob was like, yeah, this is the Tower of Babylon in reverse. The Tower of Babylon. Uh, in Ted Chang's collection, uh, Stories of Your Life and Others, takes place in the time of Babylonia, where they're building a tower to heaven. Mm. And what happens when they finally get the tower to the top of, of something, they, or to the bottom of something, they finally get to the tower, to the top of the world, the bottom of the sky, and they crack their way through it, and they climb up, and they're just, they just come out on the surface of the earth. Like ultimately, all of of existence is contained within oh, our okay, world. Okay, there okay. is no. Yeah, and I've just realized in this conversation that, that at the end, the voice that says "Hey, come on out" comes from above, and the implication is that we are all living at the bottom of somebody else's hole. That that could be one reading of Tower of Babylon too. That they just come out into another world, and it's not Earth. Which is mm. one of the things I like is that that Tower of Babylon reading allows it not to seem trapped in its own logic, that the story can outgrow itself. It could mm. be that our heaven is just someone else's world. There is no heaven. There's just world upon world. And what I love about this story is, yeah, he, all of these little measurements, these ways of sussing out the whole were done at the beginning that were fairly innocuous, like the boy saying, hey, come on out, and the pebble. Mm. And then all of that horrible stuff happens. You know, the nuclear waste, the corpses get thrown down that hole. I love the, that that voice you're talking about at the end of the story is the, the voice I took to be of the, the first boy that says, hey, come on out. And then the, the pebble that, that falls after is the same pebble. And so it's not, I didn't think of it as we were living at the bottom of someone else's hole. We just, we just all share the same hole. We're all living right, under the same right. hole. There's not a... I think when I read it initially, I... Um, misread where the pebble was coming from and I kind of thought that the pebble was coming out of the hole and so that in some way all of the waste that we had dropped down the hole had grown a kind of a monster uh, that was as inquisitive about us as we were of it and then I realized no that's not right the pebble is coming from above that doesn't that doesn't make sense so it makes more sense that like we're at the bottom of something that somebody else is looking down into yeah yeah our past like we live at the bottom of the past to me is the literalization kind of of what you were saying before about the uh, the things we pass on to our children the the things we dump in that hole they they will come back to us in the Mm -hmm. future i mean that's what I adored about that moment, something I adored a few places in the story, is no matter how nonchalant, no matter how detached the voice, there, there are moments of magical details that exist. So the, like the one moment where that rope that they were laying down to measure, when they tried to pull it up, it broke. There's just, it's almost, I watch a lot of movies, so it feels like you can almost feel the camera panning to the side where there's this other reporter who has a camera that has a rope tied around his waist, mm-hmm. and you just see him undoing the rope. He's like, nope. I'm not going to go down that yeah, hole with that my is camera. A bad choice. Um, and I love just this the, the beauty of there just being a voice that comes out of the sky that the guy hears. And then when the pebble falls, the guy at the top of the building doesn't even notice it. Mm. It's just us that notice it. And it, uh, yeah, it's quite wonderful. Last year sometime with the same friend, Rob, that recommended this story, we went to see a play, which was a series of Japanese folktales. 
And one of those folktales included a story about a fox who I believe wanted to trade for a carbuncle that was growing off of somebody's face. You remember this? Yeah, yeah, I remember this. And in that was a kind of a a sing-song delivery of the lines that made me... When I read this title, I read it in this kind of scary, superstitious, where is the spirit coming from kind of way. Hey, come on out. Yeah. Like, like oh, yeah. Lord, that was sinister. And I, That's cool, yeah. It felt very playful and creepy to me in the way mm-hmm. of that kind of childlike voice mm-hmm. singing out of the dark. Kids don't even know how creepy they are. I think this is one of our major problems in society. They're like people, but not. But her. not quite fully realized. Yeah. At least to us. They clearly are fully realized. Yeah, yeah. But, but our societies kind of say, mm, no, not quite human yet. That's true, yeah. And I think, too, that uh, you feel so attached to them, presumably if you're a parent. Like, they came from me. They came mm. from my stuff. That as soon as they act in a way that demonstrates they are entirely other, they have an entirely other set of thought processes right. and their own agency, that it's frightening. And, yeah. And the way that a lot of people discuss or like children of the corn was, was in a way an enacting of that fear that we have that our children will grow up to murder us in the Oedipal way. Uh, yeah. When I was thinking about doing the interview with Adam Ehrlich Sachs, I was thinking about how do you think the past is the parent of the present or the present is the parent of the past? Like, how do you assess that out? Is it just a, as a circle? But in that sense, like the, it's always going to be Oedipal. I mean, the present is always going to kill the past it's just inevitable speaking of adam ehrlich sachs he he has said before about a kind of story he loves is if you can just begin with one little absurdity just get the reader to accept one slight out of kilter reality and then just build a a a diamond hard kind of chain of logic from it into a more and more nonsense uh and that is something that really loved here and it's something that like he pointed out is something that you get in monty python skits or kafka or in jokes yeah like the interrupting cow there's something (laughs) as soon as you accept that such a thing as an interrupting cow exists there's something gotcha yeah and it's and it's joyful when it follows the logic in a way that feels absurd but also how could it have been any other way yeah you're so cool you're so cool uh, my pick for this week is Bring Your Own Spoon by Saad Z. Hussain, which I found in The Gin Falls in Love, edited by Mavesh Murad and Jared Shuren, which came out last month, I think, 2017. So this is a story about a man, Hanu, and a gin, Imbador, who are surviving in the slums of radiation-ridden Dhaka, and they hatch a plan to open a restaurant together for the homeless and the disenfranchised. And... This is very much a story about people with no power, people living on the precipice of life. And that is, but it is a story with so much hope and so much warmth. At the end of it, I felt like I was almost a better human for reading it. It's very gentle and very not challenging in a way. I don't know what the right way to say it is. It's a very gentle story and a very sweet story uh, about these people who open a restaurant to feed the others that are like them that have nothing in a society that is 
somewhere in the future where there there are the haves and the have-nots and the haves live in an entirely different world than the have-nots who live in this kind of radiation-ridden, infested kind of slum where they're literally like generating the power and the energy for for those who have more money and privilege in society. And it's just this one moment, this one thing that they get to create for themselves, this moment of autonomy that fills Hanu and Imbador with a kind of power that they have not experienced in their lives before, that they've thought lost because they're not a kind of a technocrat swanning about in the joy of a future world, right? They, they're living in this terrible situation. And at one point, after Hanu and Imbador hatch this plan, Hanu says, it was good to think again. Like, he is so powerless in his life. He has, he doesn't even have a chance to engage his brain. And this project, this chance, this opening of a restaurant gives him that. And I, yeah, I really enjoyed seeing that moment and that growth and that kind of stepping up of his character. Yeah, yeah. I feel like that's a... It's an interesting place to to come in on the idea that he had never thought, or he it was nice to think again that he had, like he hadn't thought in a long time. Because on the one hand, like you're reading, I I I, I read and felt such a such a tender eye at work yeah. and, and seeing details and in the way and the way the food is brought together to create this taste that hasn't existed before, the, the saffron, the cardamom, the mango, these things that have been decided by society to be worthless, to be tainted in the same way that the people that he brings together in the restaurant have been mm-hmm. thought to be tainted and worthless and deformed. And he brings them together to create this flavor that has never existed before or that has been forgotten, that has been shunned. And in fact, is the very taste of life. It's that is magical. And on, on another reading, it was the sense of, of him not having thought. It was the sense that almost these characters only existed to perform this comforting narrative about about people coming together. The little bit of feeling of what you said, that it was unchallenging. That, that when I say these people seem to exist only for the story, I don't mean it in the way that this... That the that the story hasn't brought the characters to life per se, but that there's no interpersonal conflict. There's no drama between the characters. Every moment of, of possible danger in or any possible conflict is often pushed aside by one of the characters. It is literally at one point dialogue of, you know, don't worry, I'll help. Yeah. So that it kind of left me hanging in between. On the one hand, it's it's like how could you not like the story because it is, is uplifting and hopeful? But yeah, at the, but I think on the other side, what holds me back is the feeling that it feels less hopeful to me because I feel like the story has constructed a puzzle in which there is only one solution. Right, only the correct solution. There are no wrong answers. Yeah. Yeah, I, I totally grok that. But I think, or rather, and I think that is a reasonable characterization of the story and for me it felt like taking a breath amongst a lot of the stories that pick the same conflicts over and over again oh it's it's another rich 
person running a company fighting for control of it or it's another person fighting for the their life or control of the body that that they now have and I just I really appreciated what this story was doing and how well it achieved what it set out to do to be this this single thread running through a story of hope uh, and taking me to a place where the poisoned river is washing away their blood on their hands and the 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 literal and metaphorical kind of resonance of that i just i just found um yeah to be really uplifting and i didn't need them to be fighting amongst each other i didn't need more urgency in their mission beyond you know the police coming to essentially exterminate them and mark them for death in that sense it, it reminded me a bit of of sometimes when i read certain fan fictions of of a feeling that we were moving towards conflict that we were never in conflict until the the end of the story that that the story was moving us towards conflict rather than immersing in it and i think a part of reading the story is thinking about what is the need of interpersonal conflict what is my desire for it? what is an mfa teacher or another writer saying hey there's no conflict between your characters what is the need of that if your characters are up against the system mm-hmm and two things came to my mind. One, it was interesting to compare it to uh, Shinoshi's story, Hey, Come On Out, because that too is a story uh, that is in a way about something bigger than its people, that is aimed at a story about community or society, that in a sense it has a message about this is what humans are like and let's talk about it without getting bogged down in personal details. And what part of what might have been unsettling to me or somehow keeping me from being satisfied is this story exists in between it is at once a story about these larger issues about society about people coming together Mm. and yet whereas in hey come on out the all of the characters are the attributions are taken away in this story the people kind of exist there are characters there that we're meant to care about and yet in some ways i feel like the story hasn't done the work to make me care about these characters other than put them in a, in a shitty place. I really loved Hanu and I loved how his, his personal desolation and relationship with the memory of his father kind of drove the story. And he, he has decided he's basically got nothing left to lose. All he's got is this, the skills that his dad taught him to, to forage and to accept that you know and to to breach the kind of um cultural barrier that there is about using real biological food that's been grown rather than the fat grown stuff and and for me that was enough to really empathize with him in his role as a person and in his role in society as well yeah and i really enjoyed how he he well, it's almost like the sequel to or response to the story we talked about before, because for me, that story is full of bystanders, right? You know, the bystander problem where it's essentially the psychological hey, phenomenon. Yeah. Hey, come on out. The bystander problem where there's a psychological phenomenon that if if there's a lot of people standing around looking at an emergency, no one will call 999 slash 9911, depending on what country you're in. Um, because they kind of think it's someone else's responsibility. Mm-hmm. Whereas in this story, Hanu has got beyond that. He's got so low that he's like, this is my responsibility. I need to do something for me and for those people I see around me. 
ultimately he doesn't have to work through, you know, he, he doesn't have to struggle through that until the very end when the specter of the state comes. That's where, it, you know, it's not that that character isn't alive. It's that the, the choice has been made that they won't have to work in the story to get what they want. Yeah. They will only have to suffer the loss of it and then, you yeah. know, ultimately. So so that's what I mean about the, the conflict occurs at the end. And it's it, it's there in that sense to tell that story where, yes, they, they lose what they make, but they, they've gathered together this hope and this taste of life that, that will carry them on to something maybe better, something more hopeful. It reminded me, too, oddly, of the Lord Peter Whimsey story. Um one of the things that I loved in the story was the construction of the world. And a lot of the ways, all of the things that I'm saying were somewhat unsatisfying to me as a short story. It was completely satisfying to me thinking of, I'm going to read another 20 chapters of this book. Mm-hmm. Because the, the world that's been created, it's so spectacular. And it's one just detail. Like, I mean, you know, the the, the tender eye, the ability to see the care with which somebody puts together food at the same time that tender eye also sees the horror of the way society has been designed. In this case, the air is cleaned by these nanobots that are, in a sense, harvested together from the biological material of people, uh, which is fantastic. There, you know, it leads to being able to have these lines, like in describing, you know, Hanu bringing people together, it's described as the human fuel which made their community work. But that is also a description of the human fuel that's being made to make the community at large work. Mm-hmm. And that double meaning was fantastic. And uh, I love that literalization of the idea of society feeding on its people. Yeah. It's fantastic. And what reminded me of the Lord Peter Whimsey mystery is this idea that if you're writing a detective story, the best place to bury the clue that gives it away. The best place to bury the murderer is in the first or second paragraph. Mm-hmm. And in this story, the description of the nanites, that technology, is right there in the first paragraph. So when it felt, in a sense, it felt like this wonderful thing. If you're going to build a world, if you're going to build, if you're going to have metaphorical tech that kind of underpins your 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 culture, that, that underpins its evil, you just, just you got to get it slipped in there in the first paragraph and then forget about it for a while and then let it come back later. When you said it reminded you of the Lord Peter Whimsey story, I thought you were going to say about comfort yes. and um, what, whatever the other one was, discomfort. Oh, that's true. And I think that it speaks to something fundamentally different about us and what we look for, for from stories. I, You look for that discomfort to kind of jolt you out of um, a casual automated life right and i look for a sense of comfort to kind of help give me the energy to push myself out of that space but when you say push you out of that space which space do you mean the automated casual acceptance of the current status quo yeah yeah i i had a similar feeling that this was you could call it a a a cozy dystopia Mm. um even though people are murdered and people are flung to pieces, somehow it it manages to still be comforting. Um, I love hope more than anything, but I do not believe in it if it hasn't been fought for, mm. if it hasn't been struggled for. And it's almost like I can see in this story where the struggle is, 
but it's 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 too late and too little um i don't even know how to put it like it, i think i'm you know reaching for words like you know greatness or like or like something that makes hope feel real i guess that's what it, it, the conflict comes too little and too late for the hope that is one to feel as real mm. to me yeah i can grok that and i think that speaks to in some ways where we are at in our own making peace with ourselves like i feel like i i bring so much turmoil with me to every story and interaction or to every interaction and story that i read that that i almost need the stories to do less work because i'm already doing so much work to just engage with the text in the first place whereas i feel like you've done quite a lot of that psychological work to make a peace inside yourself and so what you're really looking for is others to be doing that work as well so that you can kind of sail off with them and feel that that kinship yeah yeah i think that's that's amazing my particular brain chemistry runs to hope similar to the way it might run to despair but particularly to hope and romanticism so i distrust in myself the run to romanticism, the run to comfort, the run to a kind of optimism that seems groundless. And so I'm more suspicious of it in stories. Mm. If if the work hasn't been done, if the reality hasn't been confronted, whereas I can, I imagine from this angle, I was thinking, you know, what you said, what was surprising and true and what, imagining, you know, you, you know, talking about where you come from, being able to write a story where there's all this turmoil in the background, but people work together towards hope. Like all of the conflict is already in the writing of the story to imagine that people can just come together right, and do like, stuff. And I and in the same way that you you run to hope and to romanticism, like what is more easy for me is to turn to cynicism and despair. That, that that's what's on the front of the coin, as it were. Yeah, yeah. And I have to work hard to flip the coin the other way. Right. And um and really what this this story has in it in whatever amount, there is a hopelessness and, and a horror that is in all of the description of the world that isn't the characters. It, it, it is entirely a choice, and it's a wonderful thing to... It, this is what I love about stories, is to explore ourselves at the same time we explore the world, at the same time we explore a story. Thanks for listening, readers. We have probably not managed to say all of the things about these stories. Nor have we probably talked about all the stories. Not, not that exist in the world, no. So if you would like to hit us up on Twitter, you can give us your recommendations and tell us your thoughts. We are at Storyological. Which is story. Like the word. Oh. Like the letter. And logical. Like Aristotle. And if you would like to like and follow us on Facebook, you can. We are at facebook.com slash storyological. That's storyological, spelled like it was five seconds ago. And if you would like to find us on iTunes and leave us a rating, we would absolutely love that because it helps other people find us too. And of course, for show notes, links to past episodes, appropriate and inappropriate gifts, you can always find us at our home on the web. Storyological.com. Thanks for listening. Happy reading. Thanks for listening. <laughs> it's okay, I'll just use the next one. But if you can just get some of that crying in the mic, <laughs> no. you can just get some of it right there. <laughs> okay. Three, two, one.